Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, updates to ongoing stories involving Jerry Falwell Jr. and megachurch pastor John MacArthur. We'll have the latest. Also on today's program, another church in California could be fined more than $25,000 for its defiance of COVID restrictions. And Campus Crusade for Christ, now better known as Crew, and one of the largest Christian ministries in the country, gets only the third new president in the organization's history. We begin today at Liberty University, where the Board of Trustees said it would launch an investigation into the entire tenure of Jerry Falwell Jr. as president. Yeah, Liberty University said it would be a wide-ranging inquiry that will include financial, real estate, and legal matters. In a statement, the board said that it had retained an outside firm to investigate all facets of the school's operations under Falwell, and that it was, and these are the words of the statement, committed to learning the consequences that have flowed from a lack of spiritual stewardship by our former president. Calls for such an investigation have been mounting since Falwell's departure last week from his post that he had held since 2007. He officially resigned after a confusing day of back and forth about whether or not he was in fact leaving. His departure came after a news outlet published an interview with Giancarlo Granda, a much younger business partner of the Falwell family. Granda said that he had a years-long sexual relationship with Becky Falwell and that Jerry Falwell participated in some of the liaisons as a voyeur. Now, Warren, you've been following this story closely. Do you think that this uh, independent investigation will be enough to put this episode behind Liberty? Well, not all by itself. It's a great first step, but here are some of the questions that I still have. First, what firm did they hire? They did not release the name of the firm at the initial uh, press release, and I've looked around. Maybe by the time folks are hearing this, they will have made that announcement public, but I can't tell who they've hired. Um, Is this firm, in other words, truly independent? And secondly, it remains inconceivable to me that members of the board itself, and certainly members of the senior leadership at Liberty University, didn't either know what was going on with the Falwells or should have known. Uh, There should be some serious house cleaning at the board and senior leadership levels. For a college this size, especially one dealing with the COVID pandemic, making changes at this level and to this extent, at least the extent that I'm calling for, needs to be done in an orderly manner, and that's going to be tough. But donors, parents, and alumni should expect some sort of a plan soon and changes to be steady and systematic, not just for a few days or weeks, but for the next few years. 
years. If they don't see that, if we don't see that, then we should continue to speak up. Now, the statement also said that the school is considering a separate move to reorient it towards its spiritual mission by establishing a post at the university's leadership dedicated to spiritual guidance for other leaders Uh, ensuring they, quote, live out the Christian walk expected of each and every one of us at Liberty. Well, you know, again, that's not a bad idea, but they've already got one of those. David Nasser is the senior vice president, and get this, senior vice president of spiritual development. That's exactly the post that they say they want to create at Liberty, and he's been there since 2014. Now, Nasser has gotten high marks for a speech that he made to the first Liberty University convocation last week. Uh, He said that it's important, for example, that we, in his words, call sin, sin. And I will also say in a spirit of full disclosure that I've known David Nasser for probably six or seven years, and I don't think he's a bad guy. But Nasser and the rest of the senior leadership either knew what was going on with the Falwells and said nothing, or they didn't know what was going on. And that ignorance betrays an almost stunning lack of discernment, curiosity, and care for the people that they're supposed to be caring for. Now, the bottom line on Liberty and the Falwells is this, the internal systems of accountability designed to keep this sort of thing from happening utterly failed. And it took journalists like us, and I don't mean just Ministry Watch, but the Washington Post, Political, and others, to force the board and the school to do the right thing. I don't see how we can trust the board at Liberty to do the right thing unless this sort of pressure continues. There's been another development in another story you've been following, and that's the story of John MacArthur and Grace Community Church. Yeah, the Los Angeles County uh, evicted or is planning to evict Grace Community Church from a parking lot that uh, the church says that it's been leasing since 1975 without incident. Lawyers representing Grace Community Church and its pastor, John MacArthur, say that the move is nothing other than retaliation for holding indoor worship services in violation of pandemic-related state regulations. The County sent a letter to Grace last week, giving the church just 30 days to stop using a fairly significant portion of a large parking lot near the church that it's been using, as I said, for 45 years. Now, under MacArthur's leadership, Grace Community Church has been holding indoor worship services at its 3,500-person auditorium since late July, despite state orders issued in mid-July that prohibited them because of a COVID-19 surge in the Los Angeles area. Well, an eviction notice is a legal proceeding. So what's happening next? Yeah, the case will be heard September 4th. Now, Natasha, you and I are recording this on Thursday afternoon, September 3rd. So that means tomorrow for us. But it could be that by the time a lot of people are listening to this, the hearing already takes place and that this next step is behind us. That's all to say that, of course, this will be an ongoing story and um, we'll, of course, keep following it. 
And Grace Community Church is not the only California church that's facing pressure from the state. Yeah, that's right. Uh, A Northern California church, Grace, of course, in Los Angeles of Southern California, another church in Northern California has accrued uh, thousands of dollars in fines for also defying public health orders that prohibit indoor worshiping. This is the North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara County, and it has so far been fined $25,000 in five separate notices of violation. That, according to a Santa Clara County spokesperson who was uh, speaking to Religion News Service. Most recently, the church met indoors again on August the 30th. The county, in a statement, said that most organizations, including churches, are, in their words, doing the right thing to prevent COVID-19. But it went on to say that a few organizations organizations are not following state and local health orders, and the county will continue to take action to protect the health of residents and the community. But the pastor of the church has a different story. Yeah, he sure does. In fact, in a video posted on the church's website, Pastor Jack Treber said that they would gladly shut down and, in fact, did so at the beginning of the pandemic, saying that they wanted to err on the side of safety. And now the church, you got to keep in mind, is a big church. It has a K-12 school, a college, a jail ministry, a bus ministry. In fact, they've just spent about a million and a half dollars on new buses. So they've got a lot of stuff going on there. And and nonetheless decided to shut everything down. They said, we didn't want to be responsible for people dying. They're saying that it's a real disease. We understand that. But Treber also said that cases in the area have fallen dramatically in the last couple of months. The area is no longer considered a hotspot. And he said the church continues to practice social distancing and asks congregants to wear uh, face masks. But after returning to an in-person service on August 23rd, uh, the church received a cease and desist order. And then, of course, these uh, notices that we've been talking about, $5,000 per service, now up to $25,000. Now, Warren, let's look at one more story before the break. A video that has gone viral seems to show well-known talk show host and author Eric Metaxas punching a protester outside of the White House last week after President Trump gave a speech accepting the GOP nomination for president. What can you tell us about that incident? Well, the video does indeed seem to show Metaxas punching a protester, and Eric Metaxas has so far not denied that he punched the man. Uh, He told World Magazine, for example, uh, the guy came at me with his bike and was very menacing for a long time. But a man who identified himself as the demonstrator in question disputed Eric Metaxas' description of events. He attacked me, said the man. Uh, though he did decline to give his name to media outlets. He added this, though, I wasn't threatening or intimidating. I was on a rented bicycle, and he clearly punched me from behind. The protester was briefly taken into custody that evening, but he was just as quickly released when a bystander showed authorities a video of the incident, a video very similar to the one that's been um, all over the Internet for the last couple of days. Metaxas was not arrested or detained by police, uh, and the protester said that he didn't want to press criminal charges, but he said he might pursue a civil case against Derek Metaxas. Well, Warren, we need to take a break, but when we return, the financial condition of the nation's largest Christian broadcaster continues to deteriorate. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Pagosa Springs. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, criminal charges have been dropped against a former associate children's minister at the Village Church, a Dallas-area evangelical megachurch. Yeah, Matt Tunney was indicted for indecency with a child involving sexual conduct back in January of 2019, but he has maintained his innocence throughout the process. The Dallas County District Attorney's Office moved to dismiss the charges against Tunney last week, according to court documents that have recently been released. A young woman who attended the village church while growing up accused Tunney of sexually assaulting her in 2012 at a church camp that she attended when she was then 11 years old. But now as an adult, she's come forward. She sued Village Church for gross negligence and emotional distress. She's seeking a million dollars in damages. So is this the end of this case? Well, probably not. The district attorney said that it dismissed the case because the victim could not positively identify Tunney as the assailant. But the victim's lawyer said that the district attorney's office didn't even talk to the victim. And the lawyer said that his client, the victim, stands ready to identify Tunney. The attorney also said a separate lawsuit against the village church is going to move forward, even though these criminal charges have been dismissed. He told Religion News Service that he expect a jury trial sometime in 2021. And Warren, at the top of the show, you mentioned that Eric Metaxas is a talk show host with the Salem Media Group. You've got other news about Salem this week. What is that? Yeah, Salem Media Group is one of the largest Christian broadcasters in the country and the only one that is publicly traded, uh, which means that we get to see its financial results every three months, every quarter, when it, uh, by law, has to release them. So it just released its uh, financial results for the quarter ending June 30th, 2020. That's the second quarter of the year. And the results show continued deterioration in Salem's core broadcasting, digital, and publishing businesses. For the quarter, ending June 30th when compared to the same quarter last year, 2019, Salem's revenue had decreased over 18% uh, from previous year's revenue of $64.7 million. Okay, that's a lot of numbers. So what does that all mean? Well, the bottom line is it means that Salem is not doing very well, and it hasn't been doing very well for a long time. Uh, at Ministry Watch, we previously reported that Moody's Investor Services had already downgraded Salem Media Group's corporate family rating uh, from a CAA1 to a B3 rating. Uh, basically, that means that it's a really high credit risk. Um, Salem Media Group um, 
owns one of the largest chains of Christian radio stations in the country, and its 2019 revenue was about $250 million, though it will likely fall far short of that this year. It also owns um, the conservative book imprint Regnery Publishing and the popular website townhall.com. Will this impact a lot of Christian ministries? Yeah, it will. And that's really the key point here and the reason that we keep reporting on what's going on at Salem, because a lot of big ministries have business relationships with Salem. Block programming is a big part of Salem's revenue. That means when a ministry like, for example, uh, David Jeremiah's Turning Point Ministries wants to be on the air, they've got to pay Salem money in order to do so. Among Salem's largest purchasers of block program, in addition to David Jeremiah, include uh, In Touch Ministries, that's Dr. Charles Stanley's um, radio ministry, and of course, Focus on the Family, which is one of the largest in the country. And by the way, most of that money comes from the ministries, but really from the donors to those ministries. So what we have here is a system where donors give money to the ministries, but a large portion of those dollars goes directly to a for-profit company, Salem Media Group. And by the way, Salem Media Group trades at about a dollar a share, at least they did today the last time I looked. In 2004, uh, it traded for more than $30 a share, so 30 times more than what it's trading for today. And aside from a few rallies, the stock has been on a steady decline ever since. Well, there's a lot more to this story, and you can find it too by going to ministrywatch.com. And we have to take another break, but when we return, the next installment of our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, I always love to hear the generous living stories, but before we get to that, you've got some more ministry news. Can you fill us in? Yeah, I can. Uh, Daryl Scott is an Ohio pastor who leads three different pro-Donald Trump nonprofit organizations, and he saw the IRS revoke the tax exempt status of one of his groups uh, here within the last couple of weeks. Now, there's no evidence that Scott's Urban Revitalization Coalition, that's the name of this group, ever did any urban revitalization work during its first three years, and it never sent in its Form 990s to the IRS, which it's legally required to do so. Um, the organization ended up on an IRS list of automatic revocation on August the 11th. So this isn't an example of big bad government picking on a conservative group. No, it's really not. It's an example of a nonprofit failing to do what is required by law, which is to file these Form 990s and failing to do so three years in a row. 
In other ministry news, Crew, which used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, has named Steve Sellers as new president effective in early October 2020. Yeah, this is an internal promotion for Crew and for Sellers, uh, who has been serving as the organization's executive vice president and U.S. national director for the last few years. This is kind of a big deal, Warren, because Crew has become one of the largest Christian ministries in the country, and it doesn't change presidents often. Yeah, that's right. In fact, Sellers is just the third president in the history of Crew. In fact, Crew was founded in 1951, so that's over 70 years, and for this just to be the third president is pretty remarkable. And uh, Crew is the largest evangelism and discipleship ministry in the country. Its revenue last year was $624 million. By the way, trivia question, do you know who the first two presidents are? Well, actually, I do. And as a matter of fact, I've met both of them. Bill Bright uh, founded Crew in, as I said, 1951 and served the ministry for uh, literally a half century, almost exactly a half century. Uh, He retired in 2001. And then longtime Crew staffer Steve Douglas took over the reins and has been president for nearly 20 years. Uh, I've been privileged to have met both of these men. They're outstanding individuals. I have no reason to believe that Steve Sellers is... uh, going to be any different, but I would say that it does kind of confirm the strategy that crew is operating under. They don't change presidents that often, and they tend to hire from within. All right. So with that, we come to our generous living story. What have you got for us this week? Well, it's the story of Lisa Payne. Now, Lisa grew up in Amish country near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She was not Amish, but she was raised in this conservative environment in an evangelical church in the area. And when she went off to college, she left her conservative upbringing behind and had a successful career in investment banking with Goldman Sachs. And to make a long story short, she got really rich. Even today, she still serves on the boards of the Masco Corporation. Corporation, J.C. Penney, and Rockwell Automation. But for all of those successes in business, her personal life had cracks in it. Uh, she divorced and had to raise two daughters as a single working mom, but old habits died hard, and she continued to go to church even during all of that period uh, whenever her life was kind of unraveling in some way. She called herself a Sunday Christian, taking her two daughters to church every week, but eventually she got interested in Christian apologetics, which led to more Bible study and prayer and eventually brought her back to a vital and growing faith as well as to a Bible-believing church as well. Well, that is such a great story. Can you explain how it relates to her commitment to radical generosity? Yeah, well, when she started getting active in church again, uh, she heard about a conference hosted by a group called Generous Giving. Oh, we've talked about that group a lot on this program. Yeah, we have. And at their conference, she heard the testimony of a business owner who capped his salary at $150,000 a year. Now, I got to be the first to admit here that $150,000 a year is not poverty. And I'm sure that a lot of our listeners, in fact, would love to have an income of $150,000 a year. But this man was making millions of dollars a year. According to Lisa, he could have bought a private airplane, a second home, but the joy that emanated from this guy filled the room because of what he was doing with God. 
God's money rather than spending it on himself. Now, Lisa has followed in this man's footsteps, and she's given away a significant portion of her wealth, and now she hosts a group called Women Doing Well for Successful Women in the Detroit area where she now lives. Uh, She said that she realizes that the wealth I've accumulated over my career is really all God's money. Uh, Another great story, Warren, and as usual, there's a lot more uh, that we can cover here. You can find it by going to Ministry Watch's website, and it should be right on the front page. And Warren, before we go, speaking of generous living, on this week's Ministry Watch Extra episode, you talk with Brian Kluth, who's sometimes called America's Giving Guy. Yeah, he, he is, and, and and I hope you'll check that out, uh, those of you who are listening to us. Uh, I've um, had a lot of fun doing these extra episodes, and I think that they really bring alive the ideas of generosity, stewardship, and accountability. When you hear stories like the story of Brian Cluth, who was a pastor, not a wealthy guy like Lisa Payne, but who committed himself to radical giving and saw that commitment tested when his wife got cancer, and he ended up with a mountain of medical bills. Well, before we go, a couple more housekeeping items. You posted the top 10 Ministry Watch stories for the month of July on your website. And if I were a betting woman, which I'm not, uh, I would bet that Jerry Falwell and John MacArthur are at the top of that list. Yeah, they're good guesses, and they are in the top 10, but they're not number one. Uh, The number one story for the month was our list of churches that took payroll protection program funds from the government. It seems like ancient history now, but uh, it was just a few weeks ago that that story was very much in the news. Uh, That story got more than 20,000 page views, which for us here at Ministry Watch is a lot. And by the way, uh, for the month, our site got more than 200,000 page views, which was a record month for us. If you're one of those new people who've discovered Ministry Watch within the past month, I'd just like to say welcome. Thanks for joining us, and we'll do our best to keep you informed and also not bore you. Well, speaking of lists, you mentioned earlier in the program uh, when we were discussing crew that this week's monthly list is of the 50 largest evangelism and discipleship ministries in the country. Yeah, that's right. Again, crew tops the list with over $600 million in revenue, but the list also includes a lot of other well-known ministries, including Young Life, The Navigators, and a whole lot more. Uh, We've also included Ministry Watch's efficiency rating for each ministry on the list, our transparency grade, and a lot of other vital information that I think will make that list really valuable. And you can find this list and all of the stories that we discussed on today's program by going to ministrywatch.com. Yeah, and finally, Natasha, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that I have a new book out. It's called Faith-Based Fraud, uh, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. It's a resource for the month of September, and that means that for a gift of any size, even $1, we'll send you a copy of the book as our thanks. To learn more about the book or to give to Ministry Watch, you can go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Steve Raby, Emily Miller, Jack Jenkins, Alejandra Molina, Ann Stike, and Warren Smith. 
I'm Natasha Smith in Pagosa Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. May God bless you.